From Building Good, this is Zero by 50, a series about how the construction industry is breaking ground on its path to net zero. I'm Jen Hancock. Throughout my day, I'm used to taking small, conscious steps towards sustainability. I try to shut the lights off behind me. I'll even reach for a sweater before I reach for the thermostat. But I can't help but wonder if these things really make a difference. I'm only one person. If efforts toward net zero aren't unanimous, can we even get there? This idea has never been more top of mind for the construction sector because buildings make a massive impact on global carbon emissions. And it can't stay that way. These carbon emissions aren't just operational. They're not just coming from things like furnaces and HVAC systems. Carbon emissions are also coming from the building materials themselves, way before the building even exists. Buildings represent roughly 40% of global energy-related emissions. And of that 40%, nearly a third, or 11% of the total, is estimated to be baked into the material side of buildings. The entire building life cycle is in dire need of a change. And here to lay out the blueprint on what that would look like is Luka Matutinovich. Luka is co-founder and principal at Purpose Building, where he leads a team of building performance experts as they fight to get the industry to net zero. They were the people who created the plan that will transition all of Toronto's city-owned buildings to zero carbon. So the demand is there, but this is so much more than a building or construction decision. To actually get to net zero, and in order to have any semblance of collective action across the market, the whole industry needs to change the way they think about carbon, and soon. Carbon is a difficult thing to define. It, it you know, literally very challenging to wrap your, your hands around a kilogram or a ton of carbon, whereas energy is something that is still difficult to visualize and grasp, but we have utility bills, we, we pay for energy, and it feels a little bit more tangible. Historically, carbon was not something that we thought about. Energy was, and we developed as an industry, various metrics to quantify and and measure how well buildings perform in terms of energy use and also energy cost, but decisions largely focused on how to reduce the cost of energy. And so frameworks and certification programs were built around the things that people cared about. And energy cost savings was a metric that even until very recently was firmly planted within frameworks like LEED. Then the conversation started shifting to energy efficiencies. And so now that we have recognized that carbon is the important thing, we are starting to build frameworks and metrics that specifically talk about that. And and it is really important because energy efficiency or energy cost does not translate to carbon emissions. And also, I guess, maybe the recognition that the grids across the country are very different in their carbon impact. And so saving energy in Alberta has a larger impact than saving energy, let's say, in Ontario or BC, which has a lower carbon grid. That That's exactly right. Energy efficiency tends not to differentiate between the fuel that is used. 
and and it is really the fuel that is used to uh, deliver energy to buildings that is important. Now, just to add another sort of wrench into that, so we have focused very much in the last 10, 15, 20 years of discussions on that performance, operational carbon energy output of buildings, which is very important. But one of the spaces that has been talked about, but a lot less is sort of the embodied carbon that goes into materials and buildings. If you had to explain embodied carbon simply to someone, how would you do that? Operational carbon is what we have been focused on. And and operational carbon is just all of the emissions associated with energy use. The fact that we burn fossil fuels for things like heating and we use electricity for keeping the lights on. Embodied carbon is different in that it represents the emissions associated from the manufacture, transport, and use of building materials. It is typically something that is incurred or emitted before the building is even operational compared to emissions associated with energy use that take place over a very long time or the entire life of the building. So it's kind of the piece that I think about in construction when we design buildings, when you're thinking about the operational, we don't necessarily think about the carbon that's in the materials then that's locked into that building and what choices we might be making around materials that are higher carbon versus some that are lower. What kinds of materials in the construction industry tend to be higher carbon, like embodied carbon in them? Well, just first, as a, as a way of comparing the two, it, it, uh, it is important to point out that buildings represent you know, roughly 40% of global energy-related emissions. And of that 40%, nearly a third or 11% of the total is estimated to be baked into the material side of buildings. It is a huge blind spot in the industry. Not that we didn't focus on the right thing by focusing first on operational emissions. They're very tangible. And now we're at a point where we are recognizing that the picture is not complete, that that we haven't looked at the embodied side of things. We obviously use a lot of concrete, not just in buildings, but in infrastructure in general. And the production of concrete and specifically the use of cement has a huge impact on the embodied carbon of the built environment. It is probably the single biggest driver of embodied emissions. And it has less to do with where we're doing these things and more to do with how where those materials are being manufactured and the kinds of energy and and again, fuel that is being used in that manufacturing process. So carbon is definitely uh, number one and metals and glass and very high energy products tend to sort of be trickling down that list. All of those things you just listed, metal, glass, concrete, they're the most common building materials. We don't build without them. So it's complex. That's why if it was easy, everyone would be doing it no problem. And another term that's been coming up, the idea of circular economy, it's really thinking about materials from start all through the life of as they get manufactured, put into a building. And then when we take that building down, can some of those things be reused and how can we integrate them back into the process? This idea of creating sort of this cradle to grave kind of it's a circle we can put things back into service again would you say that's you know fairly accurate when we think about circular economy and that it's the overarching umbrella conversation we need to be having 
Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it. And an embodied carbon typically stops at the end of a of a building lifespan. And end of life carbon is exactly what you mentioned. What happens to those materials after the building has reached its end of service life and things like demolition and disposal? We are even further behind or not as far as ahead in having those kinds of conversations. So when words like sustainable and ecological come to mind, nature is a circular economy. There is no waste in nature. Every product uh, or every byproduct or every process is an input to something else. And that is not how we think about the built environment. And so sometimes some of these frameworks, because they draw neat boxes and boundaries around how we quantify things, neglect to consider what happens after the fact. So you, you start to see conversations around designing for flexibility or adaptability, and then ultimately actually designing for disassembly and reusing those things. And that comes up really quite often when we talk about redevelopment versus new development and repurposing buildings as opposed to just tearing them down. That is easy. We know how to do that very well. We don't know how to fully repurpose materials or buildings. Absolutely. That's definitely emerging right now. Much of the industry focuses on kind of technology solutions, design solutions as keys to solving net zero. But I think you're passionate about sort of some bigger picture thinking when it comes to solving carbon. Where do you go when you think about what's going to make a huge difference for net zero and circular economy thinking going forward? I think there's been a lot of focus on on technology and, and technical solutions. And that is certainly uh, a necessary uh, precondition of this conversation, but it is not sufficient. What I've spent time reflecting on recently are are all of the other things or all of the other decisions that get made in delivering a building and design and technology are are actually fairly small part of that procurement and getting the building built are are a huge part of it as is how that building is ultimately sold or put to market so there there are supply chains that sometimes make decisions or, or, or steer us towards certain decisions. There are models of how we work together or how we collaborate as designers in delivering solutions. And that, I think, is where, for me, most of the excitement is. It is trying to reimagine what collaboration and what procurement looks like in order to find ways to deliver better outcomes. So when you talk about accelerating change, it's looking at the process because we have some of the tech solutions already. We have some of that. We actually need to change the process for how we do our work. That's right. Both the process and how we make decisions. Right now, all of the leaders in the market recognize that a low carbon future is, is where the world is headed. But the problem is their climate models and their financial models are telling them two very different things. They want to do the right thing, but their own decision-making processes and the overall supply chain is not incentivizing them towards those solutions. So if an owner comes to you with either a building or portfolio of buildings and says they want to or they want to think about net zero, 
but they're not sure where to get started. How do you how do you start with them? Yeah, I think a lot of it is really starts by listening and and trying to understand why is it that they're interested in doing this. And sometimes it's surprising that when you ask that simple question, the kinds of answers that come out and and how that changes or influences how you approach the problem. So you know, there is increasing investor or tenant demand. There, there are people that have always been doing it for altruistic reasons. There is a huge flow of capital in the market now that is being increasingly tied to sustainability performance and more specifically to carbon. So a, a lot of it is is trying to understand the why, then also to understand how they go about typically approaching any kind of problem or or any kind of decision. And who are the various players, how a building goes from inception to actually being operational. We, you know, we spend a lot of time visioning and, and, and helping people understand that you know, there are these different definitions of net zero and, and there is a difference between energy and carbon. And a lot of that is, is very formative. It's really trying to build a common language around what the desired outcomes are. Are you interested in uh, getting a certified building and a plaque on the wall, or do you ultimately just care about reducing carbon? Just curious, when you're having those conversations, do you find clients are looking at risk? Is that how much is risk part of the conversation? So not just like risk now, but like, what is the risk in 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years? How much are people looking at risk there are various lenses of risk. People in BC that have unfortunately had to deal with a heat dome know all too well that there can be a physical, an actual physical risk to buildings and, and to people. There's regulatory risks, financial risks, disclosure risks. There is growing awareness of these risks. There is a growing desire to quantify them to try to avoid them if possible, or in most cases, mitigate them. But again, we start butting into existing processes and models that maybe don't have an investment horizon that goes out far enough to capture what might happen in the future. So we know where the climate is headed. We have a sense of where things like carbon pricing is headed at a, the point in time in which those things may start to have you know, significant implications and really start to differentiate between green or brown assets, maybe beyond the horizon financial planning or decision-making horizon of even the most informed and interested clients. So kind of this, that's a problem for my future self or other future selves and <laughs> like kicking it down the road, basically. Yeah, the, the joke is that you can set a, a commitment that is far enough into the future that you don't have to worry about it because you'll be retired by then. And somebody else will have to figure out what you actually meant when you said net zero by 2050. Yeah, those are all things I've been heavily thinking about and weighing lately. The City of Toronto, they've kind of got a new net zero standard. Practically speaking, kind of what does that mean for designers, developers, contractors, for all of us? So the City of Toronto did a smart thing by thinking of where they wanted to be in 2030 and then looking back to see how they were going to get there. And they created a new version of the Toronto Green Standard that established levels of carbon and energy performance that get tougher over time. 
and it created a really uh, neat and predictable framework for people that wanted to think about where they needed to be, both from a regulatory or a personal reason. And there's been some interesting fallouts as a result of that, in that we are at a point where we're just starting to scratch the surface of the regulations creating problems with how we design buildings, the kinds of solutions that have been typically used. There's lots of uh, examples of where we can still sort of continue with business as usual, but that's about to change as of May when the version four of the standard becomes mandatory and, and the regulations ratchet up. And council has recently accelerated the adoption of the version five and version six by a, a year respectively, so that buildings that are permitted or that go through site plan approval by 2028, the idea being that they're being delivered by 2030 to the market, are essentially uh, described as near net zero emissions. Between now and that next phase in, in 2025, we will see a transformational change in, in the kinds of things that will be needed to get to those levels of performance. Are there any kind of exciting technologies that you see out there that you see as promising for net zero buildings, both like occupied emissions or the embodied carbon, anything? There's a few low carbon concrete and, and trying to create structural, really building materials. So not just low carbon concrete, but mass timber in, in particular is, is, is having a, a, a huge emergence a, as an alternative. And that has all sorts of implications that come along with it. On the technology side or in terms of heating and cooling, that there are things that are maybe a little bit uh, new, you know, things like building integrated photovoltaics. We keep getting better and better with uh, electric heat pumps and in particular how well they operate when it's very, very cold outside. But again, I think for the most part, we have more than enough technological solutions for getting this done today. I think the really hard part is figuring out how to make those things work and how to make them financially successful in, in a world that still, for the most part, doesn't uh, monetize low carbon performance. So on that front, then, do you think there's a game-changing process or something we need to be doing to actually be able to integrate all of the existing technology we have to make it more affordable, to just even get the ideas to the table and figure out how to actually execute on them? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely things that we've been doing. You know, you know integrated project delivery comes to mind. What I think can improve the situation is having a forward enough lens in that you're thinking ahead to things like material selection, things like supply chains, constructability, and the decisions that we make during design are, are intricately linked to, you know, ultimately those things that happen a lot later on. So any process or any framework that tries to bridge that gap of time, I think, can deliver better outcomes. It is this idea of understanding what's going to happen in the future and trying to bring that knowledge up front. So constructability is one, but I would go even further and say that we need asset managers and building operators at the design table. 
because they will inherit these buildings. And too many times that wisdom is not called upon when we're making decisions up front. There's urgency to this conversation. Why should everyone care about the whole picture, like not just operational, but embodied the whole circular economy? Why do we need to care about this? (laughs) Why we need to care about it is we should be leaving this place better than what we found it. And I go back to my son and the kind of place that he will inherit. And I want that place to be better, more abundant, more generous, healthier, that it rewards the right things in life, not the destruction of the planet. And I think everybody kind of gets that. It's translating that into daily life choices. When we get busy and when, when life just moves very quickly, it's really hard to keep that compass out in front. Billboard headline, what's your billboard? Oh, man. I think design like your life depended on it. Because it does, in brackets. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for checking out this episode of Zero by 50, a series by Building Good. There's plenty more to come. So if this episode hit home, please be sure to tell a friend about the show and make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app. Building Good is a Vocal Fry Studios production supported by Shandos Construction and Bird Construction. The executive producer is Jay Coburn. Our associate producer is Katie Lohr with production assistance from Jessica Lachlan. I'm Jen Hancock. Thanks for listening. <laughs>